we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, ah, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckstables? What the fuck, Ricans? What the fuck, Canadians? What the fuck, Canucks? I, you know what? I can't. I can't. I keep getting new ones. I'm done. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. I'm happy to be talking to you. I just got back from San Francisco. I'm a little queasy, a little lightheaded. Don't know what's going on. I think I'm just getting older. Not that those are conditions of being old, but I'm starting to have the inevitable realization that perhaps there will come a day where I will no longer exist. I know that's a given, but uh, I try to avoid it at all costs. And it's not until I feel a little weird, feel a little something wrong, that all of a sudden I realize, oh my God, this doesn't last forever. Man, is this it? Is this it? Things are going okay, but is this it? Is there more to be had? Obviously, there is. Obviously. I had a great time in San Francisco. Uh, we sold out five shows at the Punchline. Thrilled about that. So happy that you What the Fuckers came out. Thank you very much for the considerate gift of a uh, low-carb muffins. Very thoughtful uh, for those of you who bake. And I and I understand, I'm sorry I don't have your name at the top of my head, but I, I, am, I am grateful that you brought me baked goods that I could eat. Now, I don't know if I needed to eat six of them, you know, in a 20 minute period as if I'd never eaten muffins before. And I know you felt a little bad about the muffins because, you know, cooking that kind of style of food, it's hard to make an amazing thing, but I think you made an amazing thing for what you did. And I, I enjoy them. I ate all of them in about 14 minutes. And I don't know if that's on my diet. I think the idea with the diet is we'll make you this appropriate uh, decadent thing. And perhaps you have one, you know, in place of uh, something you can have that's similar to that, not nine to replace one bad thing. That's what I did. So what? That's it. Rain Wilson is on the show today. Uh, Had a very thoughtful conversation with Rain. I tell you, man, themes are coming up between Norm MacDonald, Rain Wilson, themes of faith, themes of religion. They keep coming up. And I, I, I'm a little, uh, you know, hazy on this, man. I, me and Norm talked about this book, The Denial of Death. I had to pull it off the shelf and start poking around in it because I hadn't looked at it in a while and I love the book and obviously it's massively underlined as I do with all of my books. Massively, there's a large chunks, swaths of words underlined that were so essential to me at the moment I underlined. Like most of the fucking book is underlined. Very important. Get to that in a minute. I worked with Nato Green who uh, up there in San Francisco, who is a union orga- a union organizer by day and a comedian by night, which means he's on top of things. He's on the pulse of things. He's down there with the Occupy Wall Street movement. He's uh, he's moving things around. He's making a difference. And I work with him and I feel bad. I feel bad when I work with Nato Green. He was very funny, very smart, but uh, he's engaged. And I start to feel like an asshole. I used to be much more political. I used to be very angry about politics. Uh, I still am. But I also realized I'm just angry, so I should deal with the baseline anger and then you know you know move through politics as I see fit, which I do. But I felt I felt bad. I felt bad. I'm not apathetic. I'm not apathetic. I am inactive. Like I'll say, I support well. I support the Occupy Wall Streeters, but that's where my support ends. Saying that and saying it to you, so I'm inactive. And I I feel guilty about it. I hate myself for it. I beat myself up about it. So that means I'm still fighting the good fight because clearly I am part of the problem. So I feel like I'm doing something by beating myself up for not doing more. I hope you can relate to that. The denial of death. Look, I'm getting older. There's no way around it. I'm glad I feel a little more comfortable uh, as I get older. Uh, I'm 48 years old now. Uh, I'm not going to ever have a washboard stomach. Not that I ever aspired to that, but I do hold on to that. I do not have a faith that I can count on. And I start to realize that uh, obsession is really my faith. Focus uh, on singular things is how I feel better. I think obsession and spirituality are very similar. Spirituality can be a little more vague and maybe something more ethereal. But if you're obsessed with something to the point where it gives your life purpose and you can't see anything else, including your problems beyond that obsession, 
that that's spiritual. And if you pick a good object to transfer all of that fear onto for as long as it takes, then yeah, maybe that's helpful. I'm completely obsessed with these pants. I, I think about them constantly. I've talked to you about it. I'm not washing them. This is the new pair that I got because I fucked up the other pair and they're holding my attention for a while. They are staving off the fear of death and mortality. My commitment to the ideology and the mythology of these fucking pants I bought. So now I pull off the denial of death. I pull it out, pull it out of the bookshelf, poking around, lots of stuff underlined. And it's always interesting to see what a younger Mark underlined at a different part of his life. Towards the end of the book. Here, let's just pop open a page. All right. Underlined. The creative person becomes then, in art, literature, and religion, the mediator of natural terror and the indicator of a new way to triumph over it. He reveals the darkness and the dread of the human condition and fabricates a new symbolic transcendence over it. This has been the function of the creative deviant from the shamans through Shakespeare. Man, that's fucking great. That still is good. Oh, see, this book is helping me. It's all about other things. It's all about transference. It's all about having faith, surrendering, letting go, being part of something bigger than yourself to benefit you and the bigger thing, to feel like we have a purpose in this world. Huh. Let's see. What else we got? The whole thing boils down to this paradox. If you are going to be a hero, then you must give a gift. If you are the average man, you give your heroic gift to the society in which you live, and you give the gift that society specifies in advance. If you are an artist, you fashion a peculiarly personal gift, the justification of your own heroic identity, which means that it is always aimed at least partly over the heads of your fellow men. After all, they can't grant the immortality of your personal soul. There is no way for the artist to be at peace with his work or with the society that accepts it. God, I, man, you're preaching to the choir there. As much as an audience likes me and I like them, there will come a moment where I'll think, why do you guys like me? No, seriously. Hmm. All right, wait, let's just look at a couple more. A couple more. Oh my God, look, look at this underlying thing. The essence of normality is the refusal of reality. Holy fuck, masticate that in your mind for a while. What we call neurosis enters precisely at this point. Some people have more trouble with their lies than others. The world is too much with them. And the techniques that they have developed for holding it at bay and cutting it down to size finally begin to choke the person himself. This is neurosis in a nutshell. The miscarriage of clumsy lies about reality. God damn it. What does that even mean for me? To lie to oneself about one's own potential development is another cause of guilt. It is one of the most insidious daily inner gnawings a person can experience. Guilt, remember, is the bind that man experiences when he is humbled and stopped in ways that he does not understand when he is overshadowed in his energies by the world. Fuck, my brain's going to explode. Is this too much for a Monday? God damn it. I just made my I just make excuses for myself, you know, that I need my world to be small and that it's okay if I live a life of the mind as long as I'm sitting in my garage and I'm speaking my heart and I'm speaking my soul, but eventually that just is going to compress me. It's going to make my world small. I'm not going to get out. How much can I spiral inside of myself? See, I'm missing a perfect opportunity to do some hands-on transference and be part of something bigger. I should just go down to Occupy Wall Street. I should go down to Occupy LA. I should go do something that'll make me part, be part of something bigger than myself that will transcend mortality and maybe have an impact for the community and for everybody involved. A good thing. Why am I not doing that? Because we judge it. We sit and think like, oh, look at all those freaks, man. They're just freaks out there, you know, playing, you know, hacky sack and drums and white dudes with dreadlocks cooking vegetarian meals. You need those people. That's how a movement starts. You have to have the freak. Someone's got to do the camping. Who's going to do the camping? They're going to do the camping. They need to be there. They need to become some sort of anarchist collective tourist attraction in order for people to realize that they they mean business and that it's a real deal and then other people get on board and then maybe some justice can come out of this 
living wages, more support for unions, some maybe some punishment of the banking system. Who knows? But don't judge the freaks because someone needs to do the camping. I sort of analogize it to the Jews, the Hasidic Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. They have to be there. They, they yeah, look. You know me. I got. I, I judge Hasidic Jews very harshly. I, you know, I, there, there's probably some secret envy that I have because of their uh, insane uh, commitment and uh, and discipline. But you know, I've been to Israel. You go to the wall. They're there praying 24 hours a day, keeping those ancient channels, those ancient channels of arcane poetry open to the uh, supposed almighty round the clock. And I just think that, let, let's consider it. I'm a Jew. I'm not a Jewy Jew. I don't do much Jewness. But think about it. If one day those Hasidim who were at the wall just said, you know what, fuck it, I'm done. I'm done with this. Let's just all go. Let's all go. Let's go. We're, we're wrapping up here. It's a wrap. I mean, how long would it be, really, before every Jew everywhere said, what, those guys quit? What can we, I mean, can we all stop? So that's why you need the freaks. And that's why I need to go get down there. I got to go. I got to go out, do something. Become part of something bigger than me. That has some meaning. You know, look, I do the podcast. Isn't that something? Oh, my God. What have I done? I've spiraled myself. I've corkscrewed myself into the ground of me. What were you going to say about nicotine? Well, you, you were um, you were bringing your nicotine lozenges, yeah. yeah, into the garage, yeah, as usual. And I asked if you graduated from nicotine gum to nicotine lozenges, or how that works, yeah. So you thought the gum, the nicotine gum, was like ruining your mouth, or what? Well, look, you know, uh, I haven't really smoked a cigarette in about ten years, and I can't seem to get off the nicotine. And I know I should, and I know these can't be good on some level, but they're yeah. not as bad as smoking. And then the gum, because I have a fucked is a long story, not really, but I have a fucked up bite. So, like, constantly chewing oh, right. at something is bad yeah. for my gums. Yeah. So the lozenges seem better, but then I went online and they don't seem good either. Anyways. It's I got just, a solution for you, though. What? Stop. Inject nicotine into your veins. <laughs> you know, I always said, even when I did real drugs, not, I'm not going to shoot anything. I've stayed, away from, <laughs> I've stayed away from shooting this long, and I think if I started shooting nicotine, that would be horrendous. We all said that at one uh, point in time, didn't we? I did, but I, what I was saying is we? that <laughs> I, had, I had this crazy theater director when I was going to NYU named Liviu Chule, who's this famous Romanian theater director, and yep. he quit smoking. He would quit smoking all the time, and then when he would start to direct a play... Uh, and he would chew the gum, and he would start to direct a play, and he'd get more and more stressed out. He'd start smoking again, but he'd have both going at the same time. Gum and the uh, the gum and the and the cigarettes. Well, that's bold. I mean, that's yeah. uh, you know, that's a, you know, with addiction, you, you get to a point with anything where uh, your need is going to overtake, you know, the your ability to be prudent. Yeah. So you just need to keep jamming shit into your cells. I totally. I quit caffeine a little over a year ago, and I drink. I think I drink a gallon of decaf a day. Really. Yeah, but because it has a little bit of caffeine, so I might as well just drink a cup of coffee. Why did you stop coffee? I mean, what was... Man, I was so addicted to caffeine. I mean, it was it was crazy. We would shoot the office and, you know, called so fucking balls early and I would, like, be at the Starbucks at, like, yeah. 5.20 a.m. and yeah. I would get a quadruple latte, which I would guzzle on the way to work. Then I would get there and I'd have a cup of coffee. And then I'd have a cup of half-calf. And yeah. then I would have iced tea at lunch. And then I would start my afternoon with Diet Cokes. Oh. All it, the way till around 6 p.m. Did it cause you, like, stress? I mean, were you over... Like, because I find that if I jack up on too much caffeine, I get overwhelmed and I can't handle shit. Was it good for your character? No, it was... It, had, it really had nothing to do with Dwight, really. I wasn't playing, like, a really, like, caffeinated character. But I just... I'm just, I'm just powerless over caffeine. Yeah, you there know? you go. You know, it's like, you know, I just... Uh, my my life had become unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, thank God it was just caffeine. I know. Uh, in the garage, Rain Wilson from The Office, from The Rocker, from the uh, the part in Almost Famous. We were in the same movie, yes. you and I. That was my first movie. I know. And then we met, you know, we actually, there, I have a couple of weird connections. I was in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. And uh, my buddy, Matt Davis, uh, lent oh, me his yeah. car. And he said, this was Rain Wilson's car. And I said, come on, dude. What do you think? They, is that a joke? And he somehow has your had your car. He had my car. <laughs> I even And he was trying to sell it. And I was going through um, I was going through Atlanta. And I, I signed his car. Yeah. He thought, I mean, this was a 
This was a Nissan Pathfinder. My wife and I drove from New York City out to L.A. when we moved yeah. to L.A. in 1999, filled with our stuff and our pit bulls and, yeah. you know, chock-a-block, and we were <laughs> poor, broke. And then oh, we drove it all. We drove it into the ground and then sold it to Matt. And then yeah. he drove it to Atlanta. Atlanta. And then he was driving it all over. And he was trying to get more money out of selling it, like, on eBay with my signature in it. Did you sign it? You did? I signed it. That's yeah. hol- well, you know what? That The weekend he lent it to me because I was doing the shows there, it sort of died. And oh, then nice. Apparently somebody vandalized it and it's gone. It's over. So I don't know that he got any extra money. Yeah. Or, and who's going to believe that? Yeah. A signed car. Well, he had a photo of me in With it the signing it, but you know who knows? It's it's so stupid anyway. But well, well so that's one connection. The other there. connection is we. I think the first time we really met that I remember was we were involved in a pilot that didn't go by the same guy that did the office. If I'm not, is that right? No, maybe it wasn't the same guy that did the office. That pilot with Janine. And me oh, and yeah. you. Remember, we did that big reading. It was built around Janine, and it was about yeah, uh, uh, slice of life. It was called right. It was who, a, who did you play in that? I don't remember that you were involved in that. Sorry. Yeah, because all, all the extent of it, we didn't actually shoot it. We just did it. We were so read. close to shooting it. I was so close to being so excited. I, I had mean, my bags packed. I, yeah, I had plane tickets. Yeah, I had plane tickets. We we're going to fly to Vancouver. Vancouver. Yeah. yeah, I was uh, Janine's assistant, who used to be like a, a big, powerful Wall Street lawyer who decided he wanted to change his life nice. and, and be his, her assistant on this yeah. uh, segment for a local news show and bob odenkirk was gonna do it bob odenkirk was in it and and you were there and who else it was like a pretty big cast and we did that that big table read yeah. out there i don't remember i think maybe at cbs for all the executives yeah and it, and it went i thought well it went then, terrible dude your 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 barometers for comedy is completely off uh, i don't know what you're thinking it went bad it was terrible it was abc i'll never forget ABC, it okay she came in janine bless her she's such an, a major talent and yeah. the sweetest person in the world but she came in wearing a ripped up t-shirt covered her arms are covered in sleeve tattoos yeah and like spiky jewelry all up yeah. and down and a and a you know just totally punk rock yeah playing like the pleasant news journalist lead of this show that they kind of wanted to be like a modern Mary Tyler Moore. Right. And for ABC executives, that's so stupid. I mean, it's like, yeah. and then she had just come out, I forget it was 9-11 or something, and she was coming out against the Iraq war. And, yeah, it was like 2002 probably. Yeah. And yeah, no, and her politics, I think, got in the way of that. But it was, it seemed like a pretty good script. I was just- I thought it was a good script. Yeah, yeah. but we all signed in and was pay or play, so we got paid anyways, but yeah. I would have liked to have shot the show. But yeah. apparently, uh, you know, it was just one of those things for you. You'd been through that before, right? I had done a number of pilots, and this, and actually, this was walking to that. This is this is so amazing that you brought this up because walking to that read through, I yeah. remember running into some like, stupid executives or something that yeah. I had met before, and they were like, "Oh man, we just got, we just landed this choice property. We got the rights to the American Office." Yeah, and I was like, "Oh wow!" And I was, I was such a huge fan of the British show. I was kind of bummed out. I was like, "Oh, I'd much rather do that than this Janine Garofalo <laughs> thing." You know, which I liked, but I had a tiny, teeny, tiny part. And, and um, you were so, like some sort of managerial position, or I can't even remember. I Can think, you? honestly, I think I was like the sound guy. Oh, I oh, think you're right. Yeah. I think you were one of the, the there were two wacky guys that yeah. would be running around with uh, booms. And I was, mics. exactly. I was one of the wacky guys. But when I, uh, when I, when I talked to you then, even though you don't remember the experience, you like, I know that you were in New York and you seem to know me from Luna and you seem to be, have been part a little bit of, of at least taking in that Lower East Side scene. I mean, what, where did you come from originally? But I, 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 I had asked you this before when I called you on the phone, had you performed at Dixon Place? I may have performed at Dixon Place once. I mean, I did not then, do it regularly. Yeah. I know you didn't do it regularly, but I saw you perform there. Yeah. And I'm not kissing your ass here yeah. on your on your WTF That's podcast, right. but I thought you were so fucking brilliant. There's a, does that fly show up on the microphone? Yeah, that would be really cool if it, it did. did. Oh no, everything shows up. I'm just trying. To, I'm just happy I actually turned my phone off and my computer sound down. But a fly is fine. It's texture, um, rain. Yeah, texture. Good. There you go. Um, I saw you perform at Dixon Place, which was this hole in the wall, uh, Lower East Side. It was club. like someone's apartment. It was an apartment. You went it, upstairs, and there were couches and shit. Right. She and lived it, on one half of the loft. Right. Um. Ellie Kovan, Kovacs. It was a Kovan? pretty important yeah. place, like Spalding Gray, Eric Bogosian. Yeah. It was like it was a a premier. It was part of the cutting edge of performance art in the mid '80s, I think, and yeah. that kind of stuff. I'm making that up, but I hope I'm right. You're you're absolutely right. But I saw you do uh, stuff, and you were you were just amazing. It really blew my mind for what you could do with stand up comedy because back then it was the days of like Tim Allen and yeah, you know, stuff in in terms of stand up and which I didn't. I just didn't really get, you know, catch a rising star kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, that, and I didn't... that still happens. 
I mean, yeah. I, I got an email from a fan just the other night saying that she went to the comedy cellar with her friend thinking like this was the place to go. And the comedy cellar is pretty down and pretty dirty and pretty, you know, hardcore, you know, mainstream, if not pushing the envelope of, of what people can tolerate. Uh, but there's definitely two schools now. And I, I have to assume that now as you've evolved as a performer, you realize that uh, that the comedy nerd community and the nerd community in general is now the dominant paradigm of our entertainment culture. And that must be, yeah, good timing. Uh, it worked out good for me. Yeah, yeah. Because growing up, um, you know, guys like us just got the shit kicked out of us. Is you that know, true? Where 80s, did you grow up? Suburban Seattle. I did. I did regularly. You got the shit beat out of you. I did. Well, what now let's characterize a young uh, Rain Wilson. You're walking down the hallway of your school yeah. on your way to what club and what books are you carrying? Um, I was in high school, uh, Shorecrest High School in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. And um, I was carrying... Um, uh, whatever book I was assigned to read for English, and I was also carrying whatever science fiction book I was reading at the time, <laughs> right? Robert E. Henline or, uh -huh. or something like that, and um, and then uh, I was on. I was after school, and I'm on my way to one of these one of these clubs. Which ones? Uh, pottery, <laughs> computer, yeah, chess, chess, Model United Nations, or marching band. You were full on, and and I was also in um, a woodwind quintet. What'd you play? Bassoon. I was a bassoonist. No. Yeah, yeah. How did you pick that one? I, I, was, a, I was suckered into it. I wanted to. Well, I, I started on clarinet, and yeah. I wanted to play tenor sax, because all the cool kids played tenor sax, and they were like, we have enough. You know what? My music teacher, he just bamboozled me. Yeah. He was like, there's the coolest instrument. Uh. No one else plays. It would be so awesome if you played it. It's so cool. It's called the bassoon. Let me show you the magical world of bassoon. And he showed me, like photos of bassoons and he put one together for me and I was like wow this is rad yeah and it, bassoon is ginormous I mean it's huge but it makes a sound it's like you put you assemble this thing it's seven feet tall and then you blow into it and it sounds like this <laughs> It sounds like an anemic it's, fart. It yeah. sounds like Mozart farting. <laughs> but it's like the bassoon is that huge thing, and then it's got that little pipe that comes yeah. out of it with the reed yeah. on it. It's a double reed. Oh, my God. And you sit on the strap. Well, um, that was the tricky thing about playing the bassoon, right? The double reed. Wasn't that what distinguished the sound from other woodwinds? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, the oboe and the bassoon are the, are the double reeds. And you couldn't do it in marching band, so I did other stuff in marching band. What did you do in marching band? You I didn't... played bells. I played whatever they needed. I even played baritone, even though I wasn't really a brass. You played guy. bells. You mean you had a triangle? Yeah, or... yeah. I had bells. <laughs> Try and pick up a girl at age sixteen with bells. And also, our band. We were the Highlanders. We were the Shortcrest Highlanders. So we had kilts. I had a kilt. <laughs> Stop it. And a xylophone strapped to my chest, and like trying to like joke around and like and like flirt with the ladies. How angry were you? I was a, I was a disturbed angry. No, but I mean, boy. just in the sense that, like, uh, yeah. what's that? It's a plane. God, I told my pilot to They're, land. Yeah, he said he was after twelve o'clock. He said he was going to circle a little bigger yeah. radius. I, okay. You didn't make it clear that I we were going to be. I should have. Oh shit! Do you need to call him, or we um, can, he'll be all right? Sounds like he's out of uh, yeah. range. Yeah. No, but I can't imagine because the and I've talked to I don't know as defined uh, a nerd as you characterize yourself to be, but you know I've had Patton on and Hardwick. Sure. And, yeah. But, like, in my memory, you know, I wasn't a bully, but I was also one of those middle people. Like, you know, I kind of went back and forth in between yeah. Yeah. groups. Yeah. But I never played chess. I never had the focus to do anything that would, uh, you know, uh, make me a nerd. But mm -hmm. it just seemed like there was such battle lines drawn in that uh, that being. I mean, I, I hear you. Like, I watch you tweet and I watch you on the show. And I have a hard time separating you from the character in some uh, respects. But I know that there, you, you just must have hated the jocks. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I think it was very different back then as it is now. Well, how old are you? Like, we're we the same I'm age. I'm 45. Oh yeah, okay. So we're around the same age. Um, but back then it really was. Yeah, there were there there were the groups. It was yeah. just like you yeah. know, it was freaks and geeks. Yeah, you know, it Definitely. was really. Um, you know, that show just hit it right on the right on the head. You know, and nowadays I think that the lines are much more blurred. I don't think people. No, there isn't those lines anymore. And I don't think that nerds just get the kick. The shit kicked out no. of them for no reason. No. But I would, there would be, you know, I would go like into my required metal shop class, and <laughs> and you know, Eric Mittman would pick up a wrench and hit me in the stomach with it, just because I was, because he knew I wouldn't fight back or whatever. I was a nerdy guy, and uh, I just tried to picture you in metal shop. I had to, I had, you had to take one of the shops. I took, I took printing. 
Really? <laughs> yeah. They, like they, book binding? No, like silk screening and offset printing. Like that was my option. You could do the if wood I had, shop. I would have been all over that. Because then you could make you know, cool artwork and you yeah. know, business cards was what they wanted you to do. I made fireplace tools. You did? Yeah. Welded it? Yeah. Oh. But I sold it to my Uncle Dougie. Oh, yeah? For 40 bucks. Yeah. yeah. What, did he buy it out of charity or he really used them? Mm, I think some of both. So what was, your, what, was your, what kind of family business did you come from? Um, I grew up in a, you know, a weird uh, suburban bohemian uh, home. My dad was a sewer truck dispatcher. A what? For a sewer truck dispatcher. Oh, really? He managed a, a, the office of a sewer construction company called, um, used to be called Erickson Brothers in yeah. Seattle. Now it's called uh, Jim Dandy Sewer. And, but that was just his job. That was his job. It wasn't his dream. It was not his dream. He was a he was also a an abstract oil painter and he wrote science fiction books on the side. Wow. Yeah. Was so, he a good painter? Mm. <laughs> Cuz that's a hard one depends, to pull off. It the depends abstract. on if he's listening to this podcast. Uh-huh. Um no, I he had a lot of he had a lot of potential and he still does and he's actually right now he's doing I think the best work of his career. That happens, right? How yeah. old is he? He's uh, I I don't even remember. Old. I don't know. Seven, yeah. 70 years Something. old. Something, yeah. 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 And your mom was what? Well, my mom was my stepmom. She was a housewife. Yeah. Yeah, she nothing. Was, she that's was, not too busy. She was a weird little housewife. She yeah. didn't have any weird hobbies or she watched soap operas and vacuumed. <laughs> For real, and you don't talk to your real mom, or you... um, my real mom, uh, she left my dad, and I stayed with my dad when I was two, and then I got back in touch with her when I was fifteen. But we're we're close now; we talk a lot. So, really? Yeah. Does that have anything to do with your fame? Is this? I feel like this is therapy session. Sure, it is. Um, it, does it have to? Yeah, it does have to do with my fame because you know that messes up the head of a little kid. You know, sure. Um, and uh, my dad is on his fourth wife. My mom is on, I think, her fifth husband. I lost count. Your real and mom. My real mom. Wow. My stepmom went through two, and she's, really? she's alone now. So, um, you know, it was a real fractured home. And when I found acting, like, all of a sudden, I, I, I took to it. It was the weirdest thing. Like, I, I really took to acting, and my dad was very weird about it. He yeah. supported me in all the arts, but yeah. for acting, he was just kind of weird about it. He didn't really completely support me, and I didn't find out later that he supported my, you in bassoon. He he loved me playing the bassoon. <laughs> he wanted me to take ballet classes, <laughs> opera, anything. He loves all those arts, yeah. and you know. But acting scared him. Yeah, acting scared him for some reason. It freaked him out for some reason. And then I found out later. I wasn't. I was like in acting school at NYU. I was like twenty years old. I found out that my natural mom had been an actress. And um, she had left my dad to have an affair with the theater director. Oh, shit. So she had this whole, and she was doing abstract uh, experimental theater in Seattle in the late 60s and like doing being naked and covering sure. her torso with blue paint and yeah, stuff like sure, that. Sure. And so my dad. Crying for no reason. Acting. Yeah. yeah. So my dad, for some reason, acting, he associated with that. But I, I never knew that growing up and I took to acting. And so this part, you know, it's part genetic that my mom had been an actor, but I also think that. You know, I, I kind of I had to, I took to it and I was pretty good at it right away. Um, in my first acting class, um, uh, I you know the girls started to like me because I made them laugh. Yeah, you know, doing improv. Do you and, remember the play or no, or just a class? It was. Just I a remember class. doing um, a public and private moment where you have to pretend to have a private moment and yeah. everyone is watching, and I put on Elvis Costello's mystery dance yeah, and I, I rocked out to it as if I was alone in my room yeah. and it brought down the house and afterwards everyone like came up and like, I had moved to this new high school at the yeah. time and uh, in Ch suburban Chicago. Was and, it within the first six months of being at the new high school? Oh yeah, it was the oh, first, so you, first you, month. You got your territory. All of a you sudden, and then, I, and then I got the lead in the in the school play and then oh, I, was, I, I was off and running. You're a star. Yeah. But it's interesting, in, 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 but uh, counter to that, that, did you find that your, your real mom reached out to you more since you were a celebrity or or that uh, oh no 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 oh, no no, no. Had nothing to do with that she she made a concerted effort to get to know me when i was about 15 and then you know we had a good relationship all through college and you know did she stay with the theater director she did not stay with the theater director. it's so funny that your father like because it's rare the parents are that supportive of the arts but at, you know more so than not the people i talk to in here they do have supportive parents but it was conditional based on heartbreak yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely i know how those he would people be, he are he would be so thrilled if i was a professional bassoonist for the cleveland orchestra right now oh. be, no but he's he's pretty psyched that he actually wears uh dwight Schrute paraphernalia around yeah so that so that people will go up to him and go Hey, I love that show, or I love that character. He'll be like, "That's my son." 
<laughs> it's kind of shameless. No, that's sweet. Well, my dad doesn't even know how to get my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, Internet? where is it? How, how do you do it? What can I do? Is it on the Wi-Fi? Do you uh, do you do uh, the science fiction thing? What do you, what do you find that? Because I I am not that guy. I mean, it, you know, when people have recommended, I know science uh, science fiction friends. Yeah, and they've been like, you know, you got to read um, uh, what's his name. Harlan Ellison, sure. you got to, and I tried to read Philip the, K. Dick. Well, that one, those ones, Boward and Dick seem to be the ones that were yeah. like, those are cool. No matter, even if you're not a science okay. fiction person, you know what? It's it's pronounced Ballard. Okay. Is it really? Yeah, Ballard and Dick. Ballard yes. and Dick. They're the two. They're the one-two punch. Yeah, and I tried, and I did a little bit, but what what was uh, gravitated you towards science fiction? I mean, what do you think it was? You know, I was I was an only child, um, and pretty, oh, really? pretty reclusive. Yeah. And uh, when I discovered, you know, reading, I remember going to the library and I started reading. What did I start? I really started with, um, um, what's oh, what's his name? Isaac Asimov. No, the Invisible Man. The no, the the Illustrated Man. Ray Bradbury. Okay. So Ray Bradbury, like he was part Twilight Zone. Yeah. And he was part science fiction, and yeah. he kind of opened up this whole world for me. And um, and I was I was off to the races, and I just I read hundreds and hundreds of of science fiction. Fantasy. It was just a, a retreat. Yeah, were you I, brought up with any religion in the house? Uh, we were Baha'is. I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know nothing about that. And I mm-hmm. I took a trip to Israel, and when we took the tours of the different yep. uh, you know headquarters of, yep. of religions of the world, uh-huh. that one seemed to be one of the more practical religions. It's pretty practical. I mean, yeah. like because it's sort of like if I'm not if I do you still practice? I, I left it, I vehemently left it for a long time, for over a decade, and yeah. I've come back in the last, you know, eight to ten years. So I, Angry I, at the church or just at the idea of God? All of it, you <laughs> yeah. know, I went from, um, uh, you know, I went from kind of active practicing Baha'i youth to, um, you know, to living in Bohemia. I lived on the Lower East Side of New York, and I was 20 years old, and I was just like, screw this, man. Yeah. You know, I dyed my hair black, uh, I just... You know, stayed up all night, uh, yeah. smoke, reading, smoking yeah. weed, and reading Kafka, and oh, I was yeah. just like, "Screw God! There's no God! Yeah. I don't need religion! I don't need morality!" So you're I right. Don't on, want, yeah. I, you know, it was really a rebellion against my parents. I think more than anything sure. else. You were right on schedule. The twenty twenty is about yeah. the right time to do that. You got the yeah. full juice to do that. But it seemed like to me when I when I when I what I know about Baha'i. You, you, it takes a little bit from all the religions and sort of mashes it up, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it it's its own independent world religion but it absolutely um baha'is believe in the divinity of jesus and they believe in oh, they the do? divinity of of the buddha oh, and of muhammad of oh, and abraham and moses and everybody so that uh, the baha'is believe that all of these are all of those people are divine teachers that are sent by god to humankind throughout the ages to you know mature us as a species. And so we read the writings of the Buddha. We read the writings of Jesus. Wow, we don't necessarily believe what the Christian church does or the right. Catholic church. Right. We don't, but we love the writings of, of Jesus himself. Isn't that interesting? The, yeah, the it's stories very of diplomatic Jesus. religion in the sense yeah. that it's sort of like, these are all messengers of the guy. Yeah. 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 And then, is the guy vague or does he have a, is there a name for the guy? For for God? Yeah. No, just just God. Oh, plain, that's nice. Plain old God. I like yeah. that when it doesn't have any, you no, know. There's no uh, fancy names. <laughs> But Baha'is also believe that God has sent a new uh, divine teacher whose name is Baha'u'llah. And I like he that lived name. in Persia. It means the glory of God in Arabic. And he lived in Persia in the mid 1800s. So Baha'is are also followers of Baha'u'llah. Yeah. But, and I've never even heard of Baha'u'llah. Yeah. And a lot of people probably haven't heard of him. Well, they should they should check him out, but is not it, not on the Wikipedia. You got to do you actually have to do some reading. You now, know? is there going to be a new guy? Do they are they open to new guys? Uh, according to the Baha'i Faith, not within the next thousand years, but absolutely. Like until from the beginning of time until the end of time, God will not leave man alone. You know, okay. God will he'll keep be, bothering us. He'll, he'll keep bugging us <laughs> with kind of moral, spiritual, mystical updates. You know, it's kind of like Windows. Yeah. You know, you gotta go from Windows Seven to Windows Seven point yeah, five yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. shit. So, uh, well, that's I mean, I just find that interesting because um, it, it, I like a, I like any sort of uh, religion that sort of honors the actual text of all the different sort of wisdom. Yeah. Of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and you're practicing again. I am. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. cool. Is the church nice? It really is. I mean, it's a bunch of weirdos. Don't get me wrong. And it, one thing, the thing I love about the Baha'i faith is that it's completely democratic. There's no clergy. Oh, really? There's no priests, no, no big, rabbis. Uh, no, no big gu- hats? No gurus, no guys in funny hats. 
So everything is kind of like it's the inmates are running the asylum. Yeah. Everything is elected from within. You know, so the Baha'is of you're here in Eagle Rock, the Baha'is of Eagle Rock are going to elect their local assembly to kind of govern their affairs and stuff like that. But no one has any power over anybody else. And that's interesting. Yeah. And it's not a, a recruiting or proselytizing faith, really. Well, people are certainly welcome to join it. But mm-hmm. Baha'is are, are specifically not allowed to proselytize or try and convert. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're not allowed to be annoying, which is why so few people really know about them. that. That might be. That and they're pretty be. comfortable with their numbers, I guess, if that's the case. Well, and, no, we'd certainly like the faith to grow, you know, and I'm allowed, you know, like now you're asking me about it, I'm to talk about it. And sure. People are welcome to check it out. But, it, you know, we're not going to knock on people's doors and like, um, you know, in, try and insinuate in their lives. You know, when Baha'is go to other countries, when I was a kid, we lived in Nicaragua. You did? Yeah. Why? Well, it was for the Baha'i faith because my parents were Baha'is. So, but they're not missionaries. They weren't there to like quote unquote convert the natives. They were there to to work in the local community and and to you know start how, schools what, and be of service and work with the Baha'i community. And, no kidding. Yeah. What so, now? How, what age were you in Nicaragua? That sounds interesting. I was there from three to five. So it's a little vague. I, I you couldn't I, enjoy the coffee or perhaps no, feel no, the tension of the no, political I, struggle of the area. I could enjoy the malaria and the dysentery. <laughs> you and, did. You got and those? I had worms. Yeah. You got worms. Yeah. Good for you. That's something Americans I don't mean, really appreciate. Big ass worms, and they came when you take the medication. They come out of your butt. These things are enormous. They're yeah. like they're like guard. They're like garter snakes. <laughs> And I'm a little five-year-old boy, and they're dropping out of my butt. I remember in my squiggling around in my underpants, and then my my stepmom uh, got a shovel and then like chopped it in half. You wait, it, you shat out a live worm? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. That that's got to be the most traumatic thing I've heard. No, a, a number of live worms, and then I got back to the states. We moved back to the states, and I moved into first grade, and I was shitting out more worms. Oh my god! Yeah. In yeah. class? No, just in the toilet bowl. Uh- <laughs> I guess you couldn't tell the other classmates about that. <laughs> That's a, a unique childhood experience. I had a lot of them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Live worms in your underwear. Yeah. So now, okay, so let's talk about the move to New York. You you tapped out Seattle. You did the local theater scene or what? Um, I was I was going to the University of Washington in Seattle um, uh, where I met my now wife in an acting class. Um, How long have you been with her? Um, we've been together for 20 years. We've been married for 16. Look at that. You beat your parents. Yeah. You won. Yeah. You changed yeah. the wiring. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, it's great. And we have a six-year-old son, Walter, and, you know, it's good. We've had our ups and downs. We've had our struggles, but life is really good. So That's amazing. Yeah. And you have success in your life and money and a nice house, and you can yeah. provide for your family. I and do well, okay. Holy shit. I do okay. You I'm, won. Yeah, well, you know, it's, <laughs> ne- it never, it's never as easy as it looks on the outside. So, That's for but, sure. But, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm very grateful. Uh, the Office is an amazing show, and I'm lucky to be on it. And it gave me a career, and, and it's very awesome. funny on it. Yeah, and you, uh, and people love the the Office, and they love the character. Yeah, that's great. And, and do you uh, is there a concern though? Before we go to New York, I guess I could ask you this since it's on my mind. Sure. Because I know you want to do movies. I know mm-hmm. you're a real actor, and mm-hmm. there there is a certain amount of typecasting going on around mm-hmm. you. You are that guy, mm-hmm. you know, a little nerdy, a little high strung, sure. intense, smart. Uh, do you fear typecasting and do you fear for, uh, in, in any way that you might not have a, a future in movies? Is it something you think about? Yeah, I think about that all the time. You know, my movie career has been, uh, pretty crappy, you mm-hmm. know, and, um, you know, most of the movies I've done. Well, The Rocker was fun. I mean, didn't The Rocker like was it? really fun and it opened to a box office of around like $2 million on like two or 3,000 screens. It was one of the biggest box office bus of all time well that's something but you know (laughs) (laughs) you wear like a badge of honor hey i got a story for you i got the number one box office dud yeah yeah i think we were taken out by a couple other films but i think we're definitely in the top 10 but the great thing about the rocker is is most people haven't seen it and kind of roll their eyes at it because it had really shitty ads and a shitty trailer but the movie's sweet and it's fun and more and more like on Twitter and Facebook and people that I meet, they just love The Rocker. And it's it? really cool that it's kind of found a second life. Well, that, well that's what's interesting about what the, the culture we live in because you're a fairly advanced human being. I mean, you're very active on Twitter. You've set up this website that I want to talk about uh, uh, in a minute. But that, you know, despite whatever box office models or however it was promoted or whatever, you know, people went to see in the movies, mm-hmm. anything can have a life. And you certainly have a big enough fan base for that thing to have a life for the rest of your life and, yeah. and perhaps after. Yeah. And it's hard to really judge the success of anything, you know, outside of these old standards. But the problem is in ho- 
Hollywood is that, you know, for the studios, it's like, you know, did that. And then Super just came out last year, this indie film that I did that's really... People love that movie. Yeah, and it's it's terrific. It's a terrific film. I'm really proud of it. Again, very small box office. It's doing really well in video on demand and the DVD. It's going to have a long life. But, you know, how, the studios look at that and they're just like, you know, oh, move on, next. You know, and the, and the highway is littered with TV stars who have tried to break into films and had poor box office and they're like, okay, who's next? What What's the new show? So you feel new? like there, there's a little stink on you? There's definitely stink on me. And it's, you know what, it's it's all good. You know, when I came to LA as a theater actor, I've been working, I've been doing nothing but theater in New York for 10 years and I moved to LA. I was like, look, anything I can get going in LA is gravy. You know, it's fucking icing. And you knew the game. I mean, if you're at it for 10 years in New York, you know, when you choose to move to LA, it's mm-hmm. to get into movies or TV. Sure. But, you, you know, basically I think most people think like, well, I, you know, I'd like to hold off on doing commercials if I can. You know, I'd yeah. like to get, you know, one shot at something yeah. that would define me as an actor. I did a ton of commercials. Did you? And a ton of really Immediately? crappy guest stars. When I, f- I didn't do any TV or film in New York. I did a little thing on uh, One Life to Live. Well, let's talk about this. So New York, you're 20 years old, you're smoking cigarettes, you're getting high, you're reading Kafka. You got into the Tisch School of the Arts. Is yeah. that where you went? Mm-hmm. And I, went that- I went to the graduate acting program there. Yeah, and uh, did classical theater, and th- for three years it was fantastic. It was I I had a blast. Who were your favorite uh, parts to play? Did you play uh, like Cyrano? I, did I did you? a ton of Shakespeare. Um, I really liked to play. I played Hamlet in my third year. Really? That was, yeah, that was really awesome. You must have been a, a really intense, you know, uh, uniquely aggravated Hamlet. I, I was. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it was. It was cool. It was a great experience. You know, I did a lot of roles like that, and I got out and I did Shakespeare in the Park and. I did a bus and truck tour of Shakespeare for two and a half years with a company called The Acting Company. Can you tell me for yourself, because I, you know, I've, I've been too lazy in my life to, to really engage in the, in the full uh, Shakespeare thing. And mm-hmm. like, what makes it so great as an actor and as somebody who's a, an intellectual person? Well, I, first of all, I'm not like um, I'm not like Mister Mister Shakespeare handjob guy. Like right. some people just think anything Shakespeare's written is just like a gift from God. Right. I don't feel that way. I think Shakespeare wrote about ten great plays and a lot of middling plays and a lot of stinkers that have no reason to ever be performed. And uh, but his great plays, the comedies are really funny. They're they are taking situations from Commedia dell'arte. I mean, you can trace the lines of comedy from Commedia dell'arte through to Shakespeare, then through Moliere, and then to vaudeville, and then to uh, Warner Brothers cartoons, and then to you know the Marx Brothers, and so you say on start- up to the Farrelly Brothers. So you know what Commedia, I mean? There's- Commedia dell'arte preceded Shakespeare. Yeah. No kidding. Shakespeare used to watch the Commedia troops would come travel around Europe, and they would, and Shakespeare and the comp- all the companies in England would watch the troops doing their lotsies and their comedic routines with these classic clown characters. And they, and they, they basically, the Commedia dell'arte, because it sounds like you, you can explain it a, a little better to me, because I'm sort of I, I'm mildly obsessed with it, but clearly not obsessed with it enough to do the research. There were types, right? It was yeah. it was broad. It was not broad clowning, but there was a, a series of types of of there were clowns. there were ten or twelve. 12 clown types. Right. Yeah. And there were, you know, Arlecchino is the main, you know, the trickster clown. Right, right. And there were the dumb clowns and, and there were the young lover clowns and there was Pantalone, the the cheap, miserly, grumpy father clown. The crank. The cranky clown. And um, uh, it's they, amazing because it's still, you still see it in stand up. I see types. There abs- are types. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it all started there. I mean, most of Commedia came from, you know, the Greek comedies and the Roman comedies. Um, you know, it, you know, which those types kind of percolated through there, but they it moved it really to the streets. Developed. It was it a, was a it populist. was va- it was vaudeville. Right. It was it, it was taking you know what theater and, and comedy was and bringing it to the people. Absolutely, and it was in vaudeville. You know, they spray the seltzer in the sure. face and the pies in the yeah. face. In the, in in va- in in uh, commedia, they used the slapstick, which was right. literally a stick with a spring and a. And another and that's stick where that so came goes, from? like that. That's where that came from. Yeah, and they would run around beating people with the, the quote unquote the slapstick, and that's where slapstick came from. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Does everyone know this? So <laughs> they do now. And so Shakespeare <laughs> took this yeah. and um and really ran with it. And his comedies are so great because they're filled with these just brilliant com- I mean, you could take all the you could take all the great comedians here. You could take Patton and yeah. and Chris Hardwick and yeah. Tom Lennon and yeah. you yeah. and you could do a comedia play with in you with various guys playing various clowns and, and you it would be amazing. It would be I, amazing. Why don't you do that? Do you have time? I don't got time. Yeah. <laughs> 
because I, the weird thing about being in, as in stand up for as long as I have, which is coming on twenty five years, is that there, there, and, and even in the the pantheon of movie stars, there seems to be this repetition of types that someone will come in to fill the role of yeah. the crank of the leading man yeah. of the clown the buffoon the fat guy whatever it, it seems to repeat itself and i don't think it's a device of of the comedy industry or the movie industry i think it is almost genetic yeah. that this della arte thing tapped into yeah. the fact that there are these modes yeah. of comedic behavior absolutely yeah. there's the oddball the, you know the the complete goof you know yep. that like because there's always like a guy doing the Kaufman shtick you know like oh he's so weird yep. whether it's on purpose or not I know in stand-up comedy that that role will be taken by Neil Hamburger or Brent Weinbach or whoever yeah right and and so when you did Shakespeare were you did you get great uh reviews were you were you inspired about it I mean yeah, I, I was I was pretty good at it, and I did all right with it. Um, I played a clown in The Two Gentlemen of Verona called Speed, mm -hmm. um, who's a kind of classic Arlecchino, kind of talks a mile a minute, and uh, uh, he's uh, and that, I got a great uh, I got good reviews from that, and had some good success at that. And but I, you know, I then I moved on, and I, I really didn't want to do so much Shakespeare anymore. What so was the mo What was the moment that you sort of said like I got to get the fuck out of here? Theater? Did you have a moment where you're like either I'm going to have a career in theater, which is hard because there's literally you know what seven people that do that? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Well, in, you know, there's more that that do in New York, but the problem is this is is was really simple. I went to L.A. to get on a TV show so that I could go back to New York and get cast in a lead part on the stage in New York. In Broadway. Because that's what they would always do. You would go to, like, you would see, they would announce the new season at Manhattan Theater Club. Yeah. They'd have some new cool new play being done, and there would be Andrew McCarthy in yeah. the lead. And you're yeah. like, why does Andrew McCarthy get have the lead that. in the show? Well, sure. because he did some movies in the 80s. He can sell he, tickets. Yeah, do people really go like Andrew McCarthy? Maybe in this at that time. Gonna... Maybe at that time. Well, they've tried so. that before. They keep trying that. And sometimes it sure. works. Sometimes it doesn't. So that was your plan. Like I'm going to go get recognition yes. and 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 become a bona fide seller yeah. of tickets and come back and take over Manhattan Theater. And then I got sucked in by the bitch of Hollywood. Oh, sucked me in the that, succubus siren song. That whore. But what was that moment like? So you, you said, "Fuck it, I'm going well, to Hollywood. Well, I'm going to do it." You know, to tie all this together, one thing that my friends and I did in New York is we did a show called The New Bozina. And the new Bozina, that was part of my connection. I kind of remember the, that. Yeah, it was. It was what it, year? Ninety-three. I was there. Five ninety-eight. We did it a bunch of different times. So in the mid nineties. I New remember York. this. Yeah, what it, was that? It played at the Cherry Lane, but we also did a lot of downtown theater stuff. Right. We did. We performed all over. I got to know all those guys from the state Upright Citizens Brigade. We were all kind of yeah. hopping around doing. Plays what was down the new Bozina? It was. Um, it was clowns. It was um it was like a really fucked up Pee Wee Herman. It was like clown we called it a slacker vaudeville. Yeah. It was like clowns on acid. And someday we're gonna revive it. It's a truly great stage show. Um these bunch of friends of mine, we put it together and it just kept rolling and we did an off-Broadway production. And the reason I moved to L.A. is that we had an opportunity to put the new Bozina up on stage in L.A. and then to try and turn it into a TV show. Where did they do that? Like, uh, what space did they give Hudson you? Hudson Guild. The Hudson Theater? Yeah. Which is now the Comedy Central Theater over there on... Uh, yeah, it's on that, Santa Monica. Yeah. yeah. That's where that all happens. Yeah. Yeah, it was so, right over there. So that was in, in 99, 2000. We came out here. We did it there. And we actually, we signed with Three Arts, and we actually got a TV deal at 20th. And we wrote a really terrible comedy pilot, and we did a pilot presentation for Fox. That is terrible. And Are you they, still with Three Arts? I am, yeah. With yeah. Dave? No, not oh, with Dave. Uh, uh. Mark, Mark Schulman and Michael Rodenberg. Oh, and, yeah, and yeah. Those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to be over there. But um, uh, we... Um, yeah, it was. It, it, they they tried to turn the show. It was about these weird, almost nonverbal clowns. A lot of physical comedy. They tried to turn it into Alf. <laughs> so they tried to take these weird postmodern clowns and like live with a typical family. Like but they're living that, in the closet. But isn't that interesting though? Because you knew exactly where you were coming from. I mean, you were coming from a history of of classically trained theater, and also you were you were entrenched in the Lower East Side sort mm -hmm. of art theater scene, mm -hmm. like Surf Reality and all those fucking places. Yeah. Uh, Dixon Place, Nada. Not oh, not a forty-five. Yeah, and I mean that's yes, one twenty-two, and not a forty-five was Kirsten Ames, right? And the Aaron, um, oh Aaron, right? It was Aaron, Aaron. and Kirsten. Aaron had it originally, yeah. and Kirsten was his, his girlfriend who produced Jerusalem Syndrome, which was my first show at that little space on forty. I remember that that ran for a long time. Didn't right, yeah, it, it ran yeah, off yeah. Broadway at the West Beth, but I was doing it at Nada, which yeah. was six flights up on yeah. like Forty Fifth Street. 
right? I was originally at Nada was down on like Rivington Street on the Lower East Side. Oh man, you maybe I moved. Uh, yeah, but Aaron Bell is who you're Aaron talking Bell, about. Aaron Bell, yeah, yeah, great guy. Yeah, uh, but you're you're talking about this. You knew. It's somewhere in your in your heart, you knew that if I'm going to go to L.A., the terms are going to be different. Sure. You must have had some sense that the disappointment was possible. You weren't going to be able to sell a postmodern clowning show that was in, you know, beyond Pee Wee Herman to Fox. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, it's a long, complicated story. I mean, we had it. We also, USA was trying to branch into comedy, and they wanted to do like a weirder single camera. But the, there was a vote taken in the group, and I was the dissenting voice, and the group wanted to go with the big money. To twentieth and try what was to make your it. reason? What was my reason for dissenting? I wanted to do something weirder on cable. Yeah. You know, I thought like well, this is honor the, this the actual spirit of the yeah, thing. Yeah, let's let's really try and live for a long. Not not to say that a weird clown comedy on USA Network in the year two thousand would have done very well. <laughs> I'm sure it wouldn't have. But uh, that's what we did. And then I came out to LA, and it was weird because I'd really struggled in New York, but immediately I started to get work. I got into Almost Famous, my first movie with you, and. Um, Galaxy Quest right away. Then I did House of a Thousand Corpses with Rob Zombie, and then some a bunch of TV pilots and guest spots. And I started I started rolling. I had way more success in LA than I ever did in New York. And what do you attribute that to? A, a skill set, or that you you got good management? I mean, obviously you're talented. I'm, I'm just curious that because there's a lot of people that don't get a role going. Is it because of a type? Have you thought I about think, that? You know, I I had a uh, a lot of experience in theater and a lot of experience doing acting and transforming into roles. And uh, the guys I was going up against were mostly stand-ups and improv guys. Right. Who, some of them are some of the most brilliant actors that I've ever worked with. Right. I mean, Steve Carell is one of the 10 best actors that's ever lived, and he comes from straight-up improv, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but a lot of those guys are not so good at creating real, believable, grounded characters. Right. So I was playing weird comedy characters that I tried to fill i tried to make three-dimensional and you make to, you'd construct them and it yeah. wasn't so much you didn't have i wasn't playing a character like in a sketch i was right. playing like a character like in life right and that's what i think has worked with dwight shrewd is that yeah is he a nerd yeah is he an annoying guy sure he's he's a lot of different archetypes but he's also he's, he's kind of real you could kind of you've met guys like him before you know and and there's no pocket pen protector, and there's, you know what I mean? There's no nerdy voice or anything like that. There's also a, a sort of a seemingly ever-evolving, you know, backstory that always is a good mine for yeah. funny. That, you know, that that part of uh, that character, it seems, is as the, the show went on, you're like, oh, my God, that's part of his backstory, too? Yeah, yeah. So, and that's the beat a, farm. And right, the, yeah, and, and it all seems to fit because the guy's so, you know, off yeah. the grid, yeah. uh, you know, personality-wise. Right. But I guess a, another a, a, in terms of... Uh, so you leave New York, and who were the other guys in the Bozine? Anyone we know? Um, they they all work in theater. One of the guys is in the Blue Men Group. Um, he was one of the uh, original Blue Men. His name's Michael Dolan. This other guy, Kevin Isola, does theater in New York. And David Costable, you've seen him on Flight of the Concords and Damages and on Breaking Bad. He was in The Office. He's like a character actor that you see everywhere. Now, do you find that, like, it's interesting that a guy like you who has the chops that you have and, and, and can play a variety of parts, that you have a defined character and you are a defined actor and a defined comedic presence. You could have been a character actor. I mean, character actors, like, they work a lot and you sure. may not know them by name. Yeah. But you somehow, you, you because of your talent and your humor, you transcended that. Well, I, I did because of the off just because of The Office, because it happened to be a great show and a really memorable character, but, you know... That I still consider myself a character actor. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. You know, I just, you know, just get to do a little bit better than playing like a nerdy lab guy on, you know, CSI Fresno or do something. You, you know, well, do you want? It, have you had uh, opportunities recently to, to? What would be your dream? Would you like to play a character completely against type? Well, the last couple of movies I've Super done was, have been right? um, Super Was. I did this movie Hesher, this indie film with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Natalie Portman, where I. I just played a dad, you know, I played a regular dad who was grieving and I spent most of the movie like being depressed and crying and that was uh, really challenging, really fun and, you know, like you had asked, you know, an hour ago you'd asked about like, am I afraid of getting typed as Dwight and you, yeah, absolutely, you know, um, I will be known my whole life as the guy who played Dwight. That's yeah. just the way it is. But it's also a fun challenge for me to try and spend the rest of my career, you know, fighting, playing fighting Dwight. Yeah, fighting <laughs> Dwight, playing different kinds of roles and showing people what my range is and what my capability is. I'm always going to play kind of I'm kind of weird looking. I'm always yeah. going to play weird looking oddballs, you know. That's that's fine. I'm not, you know, I don't need to be a, you know, play Captain America or something like that, but 
Um, Maybe that's the name of the documentary, Fighting Dwight. You'll do it in like five years. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Let me ask you something basic about comedy, because the one thing I notice about The Office and about Carell, certainly, and, and you, and really, you know, everyone who's on there, is that you do play it straight, but there's something, like, I cannot, you know, look at you or look at Steve Carell without laughing to a certain degree, that there, there's something emanating there, because I know that when I've talked to comedians that do comic you know comic acting i mean it's a comedy but you're all playing it very straight on the office to mm-hmm. the, and in the artifice of the office is to make it seem you know straight yep mm-hmm. but i can never really define what it is that makes it inherently funny on an intellectual way like mm. you know because you're you know when you deliver the lines as dwight you know how is that character elevated to, to comedy like are you i mean you I, is it's an innate awareness that you're getting laughs right i mean you've got you've got to be playing it for for comedy I mean, there's such. Do you yeah, know, can you understand what I'm yeah, asking? Yeah, I mean, in my mind, the kind of comedy that I hate is the kind of comedy where you watch it and you know that the actors think that they're being really funny. Right. And so the actors kind of have their tongue in their cheek and they kind of have that glint in their eye and like we're being really funny, aren't we? Mm-hmm. I like to see characters with high stakes really fighting for life and death and allow the comedy to come out of that. And I think that that's one thing that we do on The Office well is, is and the writers do really well, is to set those those things up. Um, and a lot of it outside of, uh, uh, Kuzin- what's it, how do you say his Krasinski, Krasinski's Krasinski, character yeah. is mm-hmm. that your character and Carell character have a, an almost narcissistic lack of self-awareness. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that, it creates a type of clown in a way. I think if you do really absurd stuff, and you take it really seriously. Yeah, that's that's gold. I mean, that's Marx Brothers. Right, right, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. But there's no part like because I because they're just some guys, and, and that's think, Peter Sellers. Yeah, you know. But I think um, I, it comes back to this commedia dell'arte idea that there there are some intrinsic clowns. You, like because I can never figure out why you know if I look at Will Ferrell that you know, I'm just I'm already waiting to laugh. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. It's a magic. It's not something that yeah. that you know. And, and you got it, and Carell has it, and there's other people that have it. There, there's just something uh, you can't manufacture it. Yeah, but you're aware of it, right? Yeah, I, I, there, there is that ineffable thing. Like I have that with Will Ferrell. Zach Galifianakis just makes me laugh. Just kind of looking at him. There's something just wrong in the eyes. You know that there's something. The eyes are the window to the soul, and there is something fucked up in there. And you just don't know what's going to come out of that person's mouth next. Yeah, and it's delicious. Yeah, I guess that's it. It's a, it's it's part of the magic. So now tell me about this uh, the website because mm-hmm. I, I've seen you uh, tweet about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I what was the uh, soul pancake? What is it? And what is what was uh, the inception of it? And why'd you do it? And well, it you know as I got well known for the office, I wanted to do something positive on the internet. I really wanted to, you know, the internet, especially back then when we first started uh, talking about uh, investigating this. Was there's more positive stuff now than there was five or six years ago, but. Um, we just wanted to do something positive. This was part of my other nerd past, which was I, I was going to be a philosophy major. And I loved philosophy and I loved, you know, I grew up a Baha'i, so I was interested in religion. Yeah. I was, I was really interested in all the different arts. And my dad, we had such a bohemian household. So the interconnectedness between creativity, the arts, uh, religion, faith, belief, life's big questions, philosophy. Um, I wanted to make something just fun and vital and irreverent that dealt with all of that stuff. So... The way in that we found was through life's big questions. It's a place to wrestle with and connect with people about life's big questions. And and how does it function? I mean, how how what is what's the interactivity element? I mean, it just it's a it's a basic. Um, I went there a bit today, uh-huh. but it's just people engaging each other. We, or we about twice a day we put up our own content. So we have creative challenges, and we have life's big questions, and we have uh, columns from columnists, bloggers. And you can interact with those and give your opinion. So you built a community. We built a community. And on the side, there's a question collective. You could post your own life's big question. Like, you could, your, your comedy question is like, sure. what is it about the archetypes of comedy? Why do we laugh at Will Ferrell? What are the classic clowns? You could post that on, on there, and people from all over the world could, could answer you. And chime you could, in. They chime in, and you can dialogue about that stuff. Have you learned anything from it? I mean, have um, you been surprised and shocked? I mean, what do you. I, here's the thing that I learned is that. Um, people are really awesome. You know, we get really jaded. Oh, people are such assholes. And and Twitter proves like what assholes people can be. Yes. You know, um, 
But on Soul Pancake, we have born-again Christians. We've got atheists, agnostics, um, people who've never thought about religion, Buddhists, Baha'is, every, every stripe. And there are civil discussions about all of these things. And there's people like having respectful conversations and that's what we were going for and that's what happens there and it's it's pretty astonishing you don't get any of the occasional like do you guys are pussies you know you can yeah we get a we get a little bit of that and uh but those people are they can be flagged and blocked and stuff like that but it's it's a good community and we did a book based on the website which was a new york times bestseller and now we're doing a bunch of uh webisodes and interstitial stuff for the oprah winfrey network um, based on, you know, we want Soul Pancake to be a brand about, you know, you know, th- thinking about what it is to be a human being on a larger level in a, in a fun, fresh, young, uh, irreverent way. Well, how do you feel about, because I, I struggle with this almost on a daily basis, that, mm-hmm. it, you know, being who I am and having, you know, been in stand-up for years and sort of straddling the, you know, the two worlds of kind of, you know, gorilla kind of drunken, you know, weird audiences and, mm-hmm. and, and the aggravated you know, kind of uh, uh, disenchanted uh, bullying element of our culture. Mm-hmm. And then you have a sort of more embracing, hyper-intelligent uh, culture that that is really a dominant force in pop culture now. But they still coexist almost like, you know, being beat up when you were in high school, that sure. there was always those sort of like apes that were like, you're fag, you're, you're, duh, you're pussy, yeah, well, you're yeah. so smart. I mean, is this a timeless struggle? I mean, is there a winning? <laughs> it's the battle versus, of good versus evil. Is it? Um, because, like, listen, the, the, here's what's happening in the world right now. There are forces trying to tear the world apart. There's forces out there that are trying to um, rip people apart and cause divisions and make the world a worse place. They're selfish. They're materialistic. They're racist. They're nationalist. Um, they're all of these things that just try and uh, disunite people. And then there are people that are trying to make the world a better place, whether it's – and it can be trying to make a quality TV show or a po- quality podcast. It's yeah. making the world a better place. You're bringing people together. You have hundreds of thousands of, yeah. of view- listeners you know, coming in and learning about comedy and thinking about the world in a new way and hearing yeah. people's stories. And yeah. You're a storyteller. As yeah. a comedian, you're a storyteller. As a podcaster, you're a storyteller. And so that's how I see it is like – it's all about trying to make the world a better place by before you die. Like, do your part to just try and make the world a better place. And that can be out of making a fucking canoe. Right. You know, you I can make it. a beautiful canoe. You do what that's you can. fine. Yeah. But we do what we can with what God has given us. And so that's what we want to do on Soul Pancake. And, you know, I just try and ignore the haters and just try and make my own weird comedy. I got, you know, weird projects going on and I play my weird characters and also do Soul Pancake and... You know, I've been doing some charity work, and I'm able to help raise some money around that, and th- are, that's just what I'm trying to do. I'm trying you, to be a good dad. Yeah, how's that going? Good. Yeah, that's yeah, great. I played Battleship with my son for the first time. The old original Battleship? Yeah, we got the old original Battleship, and then we downloaded the iTunes, iPad version, and of course, he fell in love with that. He doesn't want to play the old school one. He's well, like, I'm glad that you have it, and now you yeah. can put it on the shelf as some sort of artifact of yeah. your childhood. Yeah. But are you able, to, as a spiritual person and as somebody who who is you know enlightened around this stuff, are you able to have empathy for those fucking idiots? Uh, no, no, I'm not. I'm working on that. But I want to say this too: I'm not a spiritual person. We're all spiritual person. Okay, persons. all right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, well, you think about this stuff. You philosophically, you think about it. But and... we all think about this stuff. I know. You know? I, I, even yeah, I, even I, the even the you know even the tongue chewers. Yeah. You know, even the Tea Party ch- tongue chewers. They no. think about this stuff too. Well, they fight it in themselves, and and you know, I I just it, it's very hard to. Like, I, I struggle with empathy, too. I go back and forth. Like, I, a really interesting thing happened. Uh, I, I tweeted something, and, and I've not been able to to shake it that, you know, I was at an airport, and I had I tweeted something along the lines of, it's, sometimes it's hard not to see, you know, people as just, you know, needy monsters sleepwalking through life. And then someone tweeted something to the degree. It's like, uh, yeah, I love monsters. You know, that, that, they, that there's just such a fine line between, yeah. you know, fuck that guy and like, oh, he's just a guy. Yeah. And do you deal with that? Yeah, what you're talking about is the most basic um, building block of what spirituality is, and that's compassion, and to be able to see yourself in the other, no matter who that Empathy, is. Huh? You know, if there's there's a mongoloid guy eating a cheeseburger in the in the waiting room of United Airlines or something like that, and drools running down his chin, and you know, I'm I'm there, I'm right there with you. We're all in this big. Let's call him a Down together. syndrome guy. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's so funny that some of us like you know because we grew up when mongoloid was okay to say. <laughs> oh, that's not okay. I don't. I lose track of what's no, not. No, no, okay but that's funny. Like because like you know I've had that thing like I had Tabalowski on here once and and he actually used the word colored because he's like a sixty year old dude yeah, yeah, yeah. who grew up in the south and he didn't even think. Right. He had not updated okay. his resources. <laughs> My apologies. Oh, Down, okay. Down syndrome yeah. guy. No, but I know what you mean. But, yeah. you know, there that, that's easier than dealing with some angry asshole who is putting nothing but hate into the world. You know, my my issue is is like there's a part about compassion and empathy. But then there's that other part of you that's sort of like, well, how can I help him find his heart or change the way he's looking? And why does he got to yeah. hurt me? Then Then all of a sudden it's not empathy. It's like. Let me help you. And then they're like, you know, fuck you. You don't know anything. And then you're right back where you started. But you're doing it, man. You're doing it. You're the comedy. Yeah. You're the, the you're the truth sayer. The comedians have an important role, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So what do you, uh, you know, what what other fun things you do with your kid? Do you go to the Disneyland and stuff? You have one kid? Yeah, one kid, Walter. Um, uh, we do, uh, we've been playing some tennis recently. I'm kind of really into tennis. How old is he? He's six, almost seven. Um, you know, we play video games together. We watch, uh, we watch movies. Uh, you know, we do the basic, all the Wait, basic has stuff. Has he ever blown your mind? Like, you know, like in the sense of like when they say things, because I know guys that have kids are like, I'm like, how did he come up with that? Um, oh, he said something the other day that was just amazing and I'm completely blanking. But yeah, he blows my mind all the, all the time. It's, well, I'm, I'm fucking thrilled that things are going well for you and I really appreciate thanks, you coming, uh, coming by here. This has been really fun. Do you drink uh, coffee? Do you grind your own coffee at home? Oh, you drink decaf? decaf? Oh, I only have decaf. I'm yeah. going to give you a mug though. Oh, awesome. I want a mug. All right, man. Thanks but for I, talking. Okay. You got anything else? I was going to say that on the back of your toilet you have um, two magazines. You've got Bon Appetit <laughs> And you've got the American Airlines Departures magazine, which you subscribe to. They did, they, no, you subscribe to it because you've it got to a, me. your I name and address is on there. I know, there. but I didn't do it on purpose. But why would someone, you're taking a shit, why would you read Bon Appetit? That's what you're shitting. You yeah, know I what know. I mean? You're looking at what you're shitting. I'm looking forward to the future. That's macabre. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, Thanks, that, Mark. That's macabre. Thanks, okay, Rain. Bye. Okay, that's it. That's our show. Rain Wilson, very interesting conversationalist, I must say. Had no idea what I was going to talk about, and we ended up talking about that stuff. That's our show. Go to WTFPod.com. New merch for Christmas. Yes, for all the what the fuckers in your life. I got a whole, I got package deals over there. There's buttons, there's stickers, there's a new tote bag. You can get a little package with the stickers and the buttons and my, my new CD. You can also get my new CD if you haven't gotten that. I recommend it. Not in a cocky, arrogant way, but I'm proud of it. This has to be funny, available on iTunes. It's also uh, on Comedy Central Records. And you can get it at the website, WTFPod.com. Get on the mailing list, okay? Pick up an app. Stop asking me who's been on the show. Go to WTFPod.com. There's an episode guide there, and you can figure out what you can and can't get. You can get it all with the app. And look forward to the fact that we're putting out a DVD with the first 100 episodes available on MP3, uh, hopefully for Christmas. That's hopefully happening. I will be at the Neptune Theater in Seattle on November 25th, day after Thanksgiving. And right now, I have to, uh, I have to go outside. I need to breathe some air. Boomer in here? Boomer! I really like the Boomer sign-off, but it's very inconsistent. Boomer! Boomy! This is where cats are definitely not like dogs. Boomer! Come on, buddy. If he were a dog, he'd be here. <laughs>